Hey everybody, it is Stacey Higginbotham and this is the GigaOM Internet of Things podcast. And this week I have David Mayer, the senior writer with GigaOM, and he is taking Kevin Tofel's place. Uh, Kevin is doing that endless kitchen remodel we've been talking about for the last couple of weeks. And I think today everything, all of his dumb appliance arri- appliances arrived, and so he is focusing on that. But David is a huge treat because he is our kind of, he's our man in Berlin. So, you, David, do you want to say hi? Hello. Yes. Hi. Yeah. Patching in from gray, misty Berlin, exactly. which I think is a bit of a cliche around Berlin. So I'm happy to uh, embody it or something. <laughs> there you go. See? And so, so David, <laughs> David sounds like he's actually from South Africa, but he's really from Berlin today. Uh, he's he's yes. our... He's our trick guy, and um, he covers a lot of privacy, surveillance, mobile, and other issues here at GigaOM. Um, he even actually has covered a lot of Internet of Things companies because there actually are quite a few over there in Europe. And so I figured we'd start off as by way of introduction, um, getting his thoughts on kind of his home, what kind of connected devices he may have. Um, it's always a good good opportunity to kind of get someone else's opinions on, on kind of the smart home and the internet of things. So David, do you want to, what kind of devices do you have? If any, you may not. Um, well, none really, to be honest. Um, I, I think we've got some, uh, some smart meters for our, uh, for our radiators, uh, coming in, uh, sort of being supplied by the, uh, radiator company. Uh, but, uh, that, that's, that's about it. Um, I, I did recently try out the, or tried to try out the Withings home, uh, monitor because, uh, they were kind enough to send me a loaner. Uh, but it didn't work. There was some kind of configuration problem. And then I went on holiday and it just didn't really happen. Um, but I must give that another crack. Um, to be honest, uh, wait, being wait. the guy who does privacy and etc. Hmm? The Withings home, that's the, that's the camera, right? Yeah, that's the camera. Okay, just And checking. I know it's a bit stra- it's a bit strange for me, kind of privacy guy, to be uh, testing out a camera that's uh, sort of facing around my living room or whatever it is. But I thought, you know, let's try and challenge my preconceptions uh, because my preconceptions are that I don't trust this stuff at all. So, well, let's let's talk about that because we've been actually on this like crazy security binge the last couple of weeks, um, along with kind of some crazy news about security blunders, I would say. Um, so what kind of things would you, what, what would you like to see in the smart home in, in the security kind of, uh, what do you need to see to feel secure about your, I mean, both security and also your privacy since they're fundamentally different? Um, to a certain, well, I think I would want to see security standards for one thing. Uh, I'd like to see, I mean, <laughs> we all want to see uh, standards around many areas around the Internet of Things, but security is a big one. Uh, you know, I want to see people saying that this is absolutely secure and here's why and here's some kind of proven standard that we adhere to. Um, but I do think it's largely a, a communications thing. It's a marketing thing. Um, for people who are worried about privacy and security, and you know, I've written about technology and, and, and those aspects of it for long enough to, to, to be worried about that kind of thing. Um, and obviously a lot of people in Europe have quite a uh, uh, skeptical uh, view on such things, shall we say. Um, you know, I want to be reassured. I want uh, these companies, your Withingses and whatnot, I want them to come to me and say, here's some cool new thing that you may not know you need yet, but, uh, you know, as you're doing your kind of analysis of should I buy this thing that I don't necessarily need, um, we'd like to reassure you that it is a very secure thing, and here's what happens to the data, and, you know, to say all of this in very plain language. Um, and that's not happening, you know. Uh, you see security kind of tucked away on the sort of t- towards the bottom of the page of, of their kind of uh, online pitch or whatever, um, and they don't go into any great detail. And uh, I don't know. This is this is a whole field where people need to be really, really clear about what they're doing and and why you should trust it. And they're just not doing that. It's a communications problem for me. 
So do you think we should have kind of like a good housekeeping seal of approval, like that kind of standard? Or do you think it's like a technical ISO kind of level standard? Or I mean, there's things like trustee, for example, that kind of happened sort of on the web. I mean, that still exists. Um, so yeah. how, how, how could this like communication happen? And what would be kind of the, the level of accountability for it? Or the, the means for accountability even? I mean, I think it. I think it probably will come down to some kind of uh, sort of seal that people should look for. You know, your kind of, uh, I guess, your equivalent of the, the the little green shield or whatever it is that shows that you've got a, a secure web connection. Um, it, it'll probably come down to that because this is. I mean, the key thing is you need to get some way of communicating this to people uh, in a straightforward way. And I mean, I, as somebody who knows a bit about technology, yeah, I would like to see people talk about standards, and I would like to see people talk about the nitty-gritty of how it's protected, and it's this level of encryption, and et cetera, et cetera. But, I mean, let's face it, most people, you know, uh, aren't really into that kind of level of detail, so they need something really simple. And I think it is going to come, it is going to be a matter of coming together around some kind of seal of approval. Um, and obviously, if these products are going to be marketed around the world, there's going to have to be a real international, you know, push on that. Uh, I suppose it's probably going to be a matter of kind of governments coming together, or, or, or if industry can't get its act together on its own, um, I think there's going to have to be some kind of uh, international uh, coordination on, on sort of showing people what's secure and what isn't. Okay, and I, I think we should make a distinction too between security and privacy because i think there's kind of security levels but then there's also how people are treating data and i think right now the way people are treating data i even talking to some of the startups i talk to in big companies you know there's a there's a very big gap there's plenty who are like your data is your data you keep it and then i am clicking through user agreements all the time that you know, when I'm testing products that are like, your data is our, your data is our data and we are keeping it and we're going to do with whatever we want with it. Thank you. Bye-bye. Um, so I, and, and that's kind of nerve wracking when you think about it, clicking through. Well, it is to me. I don't know what you would think. <laughs> well, it is. And I can kind of see, I can kind of see why it is like that. You know, I mean, the, the thing is, Services, in, you know, these days, and will be APIs and whatnot. Services all depend on other services, and you know, these companies may want to switch provider, who it is who's doing the back end uh, in the cloud or whatever, um, and so they try and keep things sort of rather general. They say, you know, this may go to third parties and so on, and I think this is one area where communication uh, and you know the kind of marketing side of it needs to be improved because. People, uh, you know, have to give their permission for data to go through certain channels and all of that. Uh, but uh, it, it sort of ends up a little bit too broad, uh, perhaps. So it, it's a bit like, you know, when you install an app on your phone and it gives, you know, us for permissions, which if you just look at them, you know, as they're written down, they're actually pretty crazy. It's like, yeah, give us everything. And they only need to use it once for, you know, for perhaps importing your contacts or whatever. Um, but, but, you know, just to kind of keep themselves covered, they make it sound as broad as possible. And, you know, that's, I think, where a lot of the trust issue comes from, uh, that you, 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 you kind of have these massive permissions, you have these massive kind of things which are great for the legal side of, of, of things to, to, to make sure that they're keeping um, themselves covered. But it's not really telling people anything. And so... I'm not really sure what the solution is to that, to be honest. Uh, you know, in, in, uh, on, on the one hand, you've got to keep uh, things as kind of simple and straightforward as possible, um, and uh, you know, being over general kind of does that. Uh, but on the other hand, you need to tell people what's actually being done with the data, and uh, this is where you know this kind of coordination within the industry or, or whatever. They, you know, this is where that comes in. This is where they need to figure that out. Right, and you you also have to assume that you know there's only a small number of people who will actually care, because uh, most people are yeah. like not. I mean, they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're taking all my data. That's fine. I don't care. I just want to work my light switch. Um, 
Okay. I think it needs to work in, in layers, you know. It's kind of like, and I think, you know, Facebook, uh, which is certainly a company that I can criticize endlessly, um, I think they are doing, you know, the right thing with their recent revamp of their terms and conditions and, and how they're presenting their privacy policy. Because they, they kind of have a really kind of straightforward plain English version of it, and then you can you can dive in and you can look at the details a little bit more. And I don't think it's perfect, but they're kind of stepping in the right direction, and I think that's the sort of thing we need to see with connected devices as well. But it would definitely help if there were standards around that, because otherwise you've kind of got to learn how each company does it, and that's no way to communicate to the public. Right, especially if you think about it across, you know, all 40-some-odd devices you might have in your home you know, and yeah. thinking about reading something like that on an application or God at a thermostat or, I mean, oh, 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 I could spend all day reading those things. And I still would be like, oh, if I give it permission to do this, then that means it can only talk to these five things. But if I give it permission to do this, then it can talk to 10 things. But then if I don't give it permission, then it can only talk to this. But then I have to give that permission to talk to, oh my God, my brain just broke. Um, so... I don't think we're going to solve this today. It's a challenge. No. no. <laughs> it's a challenge that smarter people than, than you and I might have to deal with. Um, so, But I, I appreciate your take on this because I know that the people who tune into the show are constantly thinking about, like, well, what do normal people think? People who are not immersed in this world, um, you know, what are, what are they worried about? What are they thinking about? So... I'm sure they appreciate your thoughts on this because they're very practical and also informed and nuanced. Thank you, David. Um, so yep. right now you are not actually in Barcelona, but you're closer than I am here in Austin, Texas. So what kind of news are you seeing out of uh, the Mobile World Congress? We actually have a reporter on the ground there, but you know, he's very busy. We can't talk to him right now. Um, he'll be filing all kinds of crazy stories about Google's you know, carrier ambitions, all kinds of crazy, crazy news on the spectrum front. But um, what are you kind of seeing that, or what have you seen so far that's kind of piqued your interest on the Internet of Things front? I saw Xiaomi was launched well, launched their smart home stuff. Yeah, that, that, that's, that's uh, pretty much uh, uh, one of the main things I saw today. Uh, you know, obviously I've been keeping an eye particularly on the handset stuff, and uh, there's some very interesting stuff going on there with uh, in, in the privacy field. Um, but yeah, it's interesting to see Xiaomi uh, uh, getting into this. Uh, they, I mean, they did a, a deal with Marvell uh, using their Internet of Things chipset for uh, their smart air purifier and also their smart hub uh, as well. Um, and Xiaomi, I mean, is, uh, I mean, you, you were talking about them recently uh, in their smart home thing. They, they're not really, I suppose they're a company that people outside China aren't particularly uh, au fait with anyway. Uh, but uh, it was actually news to me that they're getting into the smart home uh, in the way they are. I, I think it's, they've very much been a company worth watching. Um, and they actually did a press conference last month here in no, it is last month in February in the U.S. where they kind of showed off some products that you can actually buy, cannot actually buy in the U.S., um, but just kind of, I think everyone's biding their time waiting for Xiaomi to introduce something here in the U.S. market. Um, they're, they're basically doing low-cost Android phones for, is what they're kind of known for, um, but that with the smart home kind of stuff that they're launching, it's very much kind of geared towards the Chinese market. Their first product was an air purifier. Um, which is a hot, that's a hot commodity in the, the, the Chinese market because of pollution issues and concerns. I can imagine, yeah. But they have also a, a module that they've made that um, kind of can be used to turn any appliance into a connected appliance. And I've been actually really interested in that. Um, I have not seen it. I've been asking people about it. Um, but... I don't know if it's a translation error and it's just like something you plug into the wall to make it smart, um, or if it's actually an appliance module that makes an appliance smart that you plug into an appliance or you could pop into an appliance to make it connected. Um, and if it's the latter, that's really interesting because that could be a game changer for a lot of appliance. I mean, any number of appliances, because then you just add connectivity to them, um, which isn't actually that hard. Um, 
But, you know, connectivity plus cloud suddenly gets you, you know, actually a smart toaster should you want to market one of those products to people. And I, I think well, there's... Precisely. I'm like, I think that's actually really exciting. Um, and the module itself was in the range of three to five U.S. dollars, um, which, you know, wouldn't add a lot to the retail costs. So, you know, worth watching, kind of interesting, especially when we see like... The Wemo has their connected crock pot and their connected coffee maker, but the Wemo connected crock pot's like $150. The connected coffee maker's $160, um, which is kind of a lot of money for these connected products, although they do add extra sensors to them to make them a little bit more reasonable as being part of connected. So like the coffee pot, for example, not only is connected, but it also tracks like water levels and stuff. So it doesn't automatically turn on if there's not enough water to like start the coffee, which, you know, Yay! Um, makes sense. So I can see where it's adding the extra costs. Um, but, so that's kind of what show, I, I can't look at the word and say it, show me is doing. Um, and we'll just kind of keep our eyes on it because I would like to see kind of cheaper stuff invade the smart home. I think it's, as long as the costs of the goods go down, we're going to see a lot more investment on the intelligence. And that's where I think we're going to need a lot more innovation to make this fun for the end user. Um, other news? Yeah, from- absolutely. And, and, and another thing I actually saw is imagination technologies uh, have uh, released or the, the, they announced at Mobile World Congress uh, a graphics processing unit, which they're claiming is um, useful for the Internet of Things. And it's something I, I, I kind of wonder if they've just added this onto the list. I mean, it's there for, you know, budget smartphones, this GPU and, um, you know, uh, smartwatches and whatnot. And they also say, and the Internet of Things. Um, and I'm kind of thinking, well, I mean, how many how many things in the sort of connected devices of, of the sort of thing that you think of as IoT, how many of them actually need a, a quad-core GPU behind the screen? Um, I'm not really sure about that myself. Maybe cars? Don't know. Um, less screens, but if you can get visual processing, that's really compelling. I actually did a story today in the that's company point. launch today that is doing... It's called Apical, and they do image processing technology for companies like Samsung and Polycom. And actually, they do some image processing technology that's on the ARM Mali GPU um, core. And what they're doing is actually they're they're proposing putting, they call it art sensor technology, and they have a chip that goes with this art software. And what it does is it takes motion read inside the house. It recognizes the motions that individual people can make without turning it to video. It can say who that person is and what they're doing, and then can take that information and build kind of scenarios around it. So it can say something as general as there are three people in the home right now, or I can say something as specific as Stacy is gesturing, turn off the lights. But it does it without ever taking that data that it sees, the computer data that it sees, and turning it into video, which has really interesting privacy implications. It also has yeah. really interesting data consumption implications because it's taking huge amounts of visual data and turning it into very small amounts of computer data. So I am really intrigued. That's, that's a good point. Yes, I'm. 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 I'm uh, I mean, with, with my privacy hat on, you know, as it were. Um, actually, there's a product. Uh, <laughs> um, I've, uh, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm quite keen on on the end device being as smart as possible, um, and you know, relying on the cloud as little as possible, particularly when it comes to things like video that can be particularly, uh, you know, kind of privacy infringing. So, uh, no, I absolutely see your point there. That's a, a good one. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm, I love it. It's it. The company licenses their technology, so something like this could really add a lot of rich context to the house, without like letting visual data out of your house. Because I actually don't want cameras in my house at all if I can help it, um, and this makes it so I wouldn't have to. Um, it also allows that kind of data to be processed a lot faster. 
um, because you're processing it on a very specially designed piece of silicon, which is, they call it the spirit piece of silicon. It's the technology they call they use. Um, So all of that's happening at the edge node. Then you're sending the data in the the little bits of data to the, the hub inside the home. And then the home decides what to do with that information, you know, very quickly. And then you're like, you get things like more accurate away, you know, settings. So you can be like, oh, actually no one's in the home except for the dog. But I recognize the dog, you know, the data stream that, you know, equates to the dog. I know what that is. So I'm not going to set off the burglar alarm for that or, you know, whatever. You can also do things like say, oh my gosh, because I faint a lot, I'll... My husband's like, that would be really amazing because then you could be like, oh, Stacy just fainted. You know, I can dial 911. Um, so again, those things would be really, really interesting. Not to say that, you know, you couldn't, you know, take that same data and transcode it, not actually to video, but to you could take the same data and take the meaning from it. And then I guess you could use that nefariously, but it's a little less worrisome as a user, you know, who's like, oh, I don't want my kid's face on the internet or strangers getting naked pictures of me. So, so yes. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's, it's, all, it's almost, well, not quite, but it's almost like the difference between metadata and the data itself, you know, it can, it can tell you a lot, uh, which is kind of what you want in this particular case. Um, uh, but uh, it's not quite the same as sort of somebody kind of prying into the, the details. So, yeah. Exactly. It's the sexy, sexy metadata. Um, All right. And then let's see, before we cut out for the day, I have, let's see, some, what do I have? I have some really cool stuff I wanted to tell you guys about. A couple little news bits that I thought were worth noting. Um, It looks like carriers are kind of getting on board with selling data cheaply for the Internet of Things and maybe in packages that are a little bit more developer friendly um, in the past couple of weeks I've seen two kind of developer board options for the IO for the Internet of Things on the carrier front. One is from a company called Connect that is with two K's. Um, the other is from our buddies at Spark Core. They have the board, the electron board at Kickstarter um, that seems to be doing really well. And both of those are basically services where you can pay a nominal amount a month and get a dev board that has kind of a SIM card in it and you can pay whatever amount each month and you get cellular connectivity to build into your projects, which I think is a really big move for IoT because historically the carriers have not been willing to sell you that kind of connectivity. And so yay on them. Not all of them want to still sell you that connectivity, but it's a big move for them. Yay. I'd love to be a fly on the wall of those negotiations. Uh, <laughs> I wonder what the, I wonder what the thinking is, you know, at the carriers uh, as as they kind of go through, um, you know, this, this this thing they kind of they have to be in there, but it means changing their model big time. It does, but yeah, they have to, man. Um, Telefonica is actually one of the ones that has been most flexible. I think um, I, I see them in more of these IoT kind Ooh. of deals than any other carrier. So kudos to them. Um, other news, the Mayo, the Mayo armband, it is a gesture based armband, um, by Thalmic Labs is on sale for, uh, $1.99 on Amazon. So makers out there who want to play with the Mayo armband, go get it. It's fun. It's out there. Um, and we have a winner from our MyQ garage door opener contest. Um, I am... Woohoo! That's right. Jonathan Barth is our winner. He, um, I think we actually even answered his question. Um, so he is a double winner because <laughs> he, he submitted his question and it was answered and his name was drawn out of the connect. It's actually not a connected crock pot, y'all. It is just a crock pot. But I did draw the name out of a crock pot. And to all of you who Send in questions. We're actually designing a couple shows around them because they were great questions. We might still answer a couple more. Um, and we appreciate y'all submitting them. And Jonathan, your MyQ is on its way once you send me your address. So that really concludes our show. 
please stay tuned for our guest, who is Charlie Peters, who is a senior executive vice president at Emerson. He's talking about the kind of business rationale and some of the hurdles in the way for IoT in the industry. He's talking about business hurdles in the way of industrial IoT. It's really a fascinating discussion, so stay tuned. And let's thank David. Thank you, David, for coming on the show in place of Kevin this week. My pleasure. Awesome. Today's episode is brought to you by AppDynamics, the application intelligence company. The AppDynamics application intelligence platform enables companies to see everything with unified monitoring, act fast with DevOps collaboration, and know the business impact with application analytics. The platform is architected to give business users the certainty that their business is running at their best, to give IT the operational visibility and control they need, and to give end users the great experiences they've come to expect and demand. Learn more at www.appdynamics.com. Hey, everybody, we are back with the GigaOM Internet of Things podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Stacey Higginbotham, and today's guest is Charlie Peters. He's a senior executive vice president at Emerson. It is a giant, giant, as in $24.4 billion global, global manufacturing and technology company. Um, hi, Charlie, how are you doing? Hi, uh, Stacey. I'm doing great. Anxious to talk about this today. I know. And boy, I am anxious to hear from you because, guys, Charlie has been thinking about this a lot. And he is, I think he's really smart, y'all. Um, or he sounds really smart, so I'm, I'm willing to listen to him. So we were talking before the show, and you, we started out talking about kind of how businesses may not quite be ready for the Internet of Things, but you are darn sure that it is going to change their business models. So why don't we kind of start out with how you think that's going to, how you think that's going to change people's business models? Well, I think the Internet of Things is disruptive. And uh, that in itself, we've learned over the past many decades, can change business models if you if you go back to, to radio, to television, to YouTube, uh, you can see even in my lifetime things have, have changed pretty rapidly. If you go from newspapers or magazines to Twitter, uh, life changes pretty pretty rapidly. So it, it's clear to me for a number of reasons that the Internet of Things is disruptive and, and that will change people's business models. It'll take a lot of people out of business, it'll reduce the profitability of some businesses, and it'll pay massive rewards and dividends to other businesses. So how you play out this scenario is really critical, and that's why I caution everybody to pay close attention to this and get in the game and, and start playing. Now, before, before we get then to the question, I do want to ask, because you just said that it will take some people out of business and it will put massive gains towards other businesses. Does it also offer an opportunity for new businesses to form? Sure. Many okay. of the winners in, in the Internet of Things will be new. I think it's actually probably to, to a disadvantage to be a current participant. Uh, it precludes you from taking certain steps and certain risk and kind of adds burdens to you that uh, uh, kind of retard your development efforts. So in many cases, uh, there's at least some advantages that new entrants have. Uh, there's some disadvantages, uh, knowledge and, and presence and critical mass, uh, but it's not a one-size-fits-all thing. But a lot of the winners will be new companies that we don't know today. Awesome. All right. Well, let's let's start about kind of some of the the aspects that you think the Internet of Things will give the, the positive aspects that the Internet of Things will give businesses. Just so we can kind of start with a framework here. How does this change business today? Well, I, I think the the big positive thing it gives is 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 customers. It it empowers customers. But think of the Internet of Things as doing three things. I. I call it transparency, immediacy, and productivity. So transparency, uh, if you go back through history, a lot of businesses make high returns and make their profits and, and survive on providing value added. But um, 
not necessarily doing it in a fully exposed manner. And I like to say that the Internet of Things, with its transparency, lifts the veils on a lot of the secrecy that that uh, protects. And so inherent in that will that that will be disruptive, as I and as I say, and and uh, change some people's business models. So the other thing is immediacy. Um, think of the term friction of, of time. Time time is a friction. Sometimes it takes a long time, maybe days, weeks, whatever, to find out about things. When you put stuff on the internet and start moving information around at hyperspeed and and processing it at hyperspeed, you get what we term real-time inputs. And uh, by removing that friction of time, uh, it makes uh, things far more more effective. And then finally, productivity. Uh, When you sort through the whole value-added stream of different applications, Sometimes putting things on the Internet reduces the cost of doing them dramatically. Many things actually come out as free. And so I think of this terms of productivity, not so much in terms of labor input, but in the broader measure of cost. And, and many of the value add, much of it comes for free now, where we used to have to hire people or, or certainly pay services to do things. And in that zero cost is probably the biggest disruptor because over time as we've studied disruptions, we've learned that the most potent disruptions are the ones that are the lowest cost. And um, when you go to zero cost, that's kind of the ultimate. So uh, it it creates really a lot of havoc with how things are done, creates some losers, kind of creates a lot of, uh, reduces the profitability or the viability of certain businesses to kind of a commodity level or a very mediocre level, and yet it provides for a few winners and in many cases large winners. We look at some of our applications as having the potential to, to produce billions and billions of dollars of profit and even give us platforms that can be extended into to other areas. So, you know, wait, wait. Before, before we go yeah. into your platforms, I, I did want to ask you, because these are these are kind of the customer facing things, because what you're describing sounds a lot like kind of the things we gained in the mobile revolution in some sense and are really kind of proliferating now that more and more people have like smartphones that are using them. So services like Uber or services that help me compare prices, like while I'm at a store to things online. Um are there benefits internal to the business to applying some of this transparency and immediacy internal to the business? Or are you merely, or, or are you mostly looking externally? No, you're looking totally internally. Too. Oh, okay. Uh, looking at both. So, so mobile had an impact a lot on kind of personal things, but when you get into the business world, the commercial world, there's dramatic improvements in efficiency and reliability in terms of capacity utilization, in terms of extending capacity, the life of the products. We talk about repair versus replacement paradigms. Many, many uh, economic advantages that people can, that uh, businesses can can benefit from. So it's a much broader impact than just mobile. Okay. So do you want to talk about your platforms now or maybe give me an example of how you guys are looking at this internally at Emerson, how you guys are kind of changing your business or reacting to this? Emerson operates in a number of independent business areas. Uh, We have the world's largest process control business. So we have a business called Process Management that provides control systems and instrumentation for all types of processing plants around the world. Uh, we have a business called Network Power that kind of does all things data centers. We have a business called Climate Technologies that deals in uh, HVAC and refrigeration equipment. And we work in factories and industrial automation. So each of those business entities has been working over the last decade on Internet of Things type applications. and. You know, we've asked ourselves the broadest, broader question of how do you trade on information in the future? We were a 20th century manufacturer. We largely made, we largely succeeded around excellence in manufacturing and technology. But 
as technology progressed, uh, it really became more about how do you put intelligence in products. And as you put intelligence in products, you started to create data, and then you started to say, how can you connect the data we have with the data from adjacent applications to kind of solve higher-level problems and really the ultimate problems that our end users ask us to solve. And so it keeps getting a higher and higher level uh, of, of solutions, uh, which really evolves into this kind of Internet of Things uh, definition that's being kicked around now. So in each one of those areas, we've been working on it. In, in process management, we have an initiative called Pervasive Sensing, where we go from just working on what we call critical managing critical parameters of running a process to getting more into kind of the business level, improving the effectiveness of the business and the, the, the profitability. In, uh, in uh, Network Power, we have a, a new product in the data center infrastructure management space called Trellis, and it sits on top of uh, racks and devices and pulls real-time information about the operations of servers, routers, storage devices, and the like, and as well as all the supporting infrastructure to improve the reliability and the capacity utilization of the data center. And then in climate technologies, we do the same thing, instrumenting like the refrigeration systems or the HVAC systems of a, of a space. And so these are the types of things that we've been working on over the last five or ten years to try to, one, build the infrastructure of information, two, figure out how to use the information, and ultimately, what are the business models that come out of that? Okay. And when you talked about kind of your, your three things, the transparency, the immediacy, and productivity, you also talked about kind of finding levers that you could kind of press to become the value add um, that could drive a business to kind of becoming one of the big success stories. Um, and I would be curious how you guys try to recognize those or how can a company recognize those levers, especially when you're looking at things going, you know, down to a cost of zero and, you know, transparency, making things, you know, just you have to cut your cost to the bone for the customer and all kinds of things. So how do you find those levers that you can press and how do you recognize them when you do have them? So this is uh, probably where I, in my mind, I can deliver the most insight because um, I, I kind of uh, want to first throw out the phrase, tried carefully and slowly, because there's a lot of landmines as you go through these things. Um, so you can you can kind of mess up and let your information, which is maybe the key to the whole application, out for free and kind of destroy the opportunity. So that's the trod carefully. The trod slowly is there's a lot of resistance either from other companies that you kind of have to partner with or for reluctant end users where there's a lot of inertia. And until you get pretty high levels of adoption, some of these uh, new business models don't really work. In other words, sometimes you can only get 1% of the customers to adopt something, and the new business model isn't going to happen. But if you got 40 or 50%, it would be transformational. So, so that's the kind of the expect to go slowly. Um, the one thing that I've learned in the last year even and I've been at this for about 10 years, is that unfortunately our traditional approach to finding how to leverage and monetize something new doesn't really work here. Because the traditional approach is let's go ask the end user what they need. And in a more sophisticated sometimes, sometimes let's go watch them and investigate them and figure out our own what they need and then provide that need and they will pay us for that. And what we're finding is oftentimes there's multiple approaches to monetizing an Internet of Things applications, and it's not always getting paid directly by the customer that benefits it. Sometimes it's in the form of controlling the information and controlling kind of the intermediary parts of business 
Um, and so I think it becomes a much higher level analysis to to kind of figure out how to to monetize these things. And that adds further to the confusion, which adds further to the caution, which is what's driving everyone crazy, making this proceed much slower than people imagine. It is driving a lot of people crazy. You're right. Okay. And then we also, there might be some other things kind of making this go slowly. And we talked about it briefly before, um, which is that we're not even quite there technically um, from an infrastructure point of view when it comes to actually having connected sensors at the edge. And I don't know if you really wanted to talk about that, but I thought you brought up some really good points about having the wireless connectivity. Right now, we we don't actually have it as good as we probably need to have it, right? Yeah, um, when you think of everything that it takes to enable the Internet of Things and you think of the impediments today, uh, I like to simply say one of the impediments we're still dealing with is physics. So, you can't change physics. No, I, well, we argue about that some, but I, I think it's pretty safe to say you can't change physics and, and you can only work on it. But, you know, think of, think of what it takes to enable it. First, you've you got to have a lot of data, so you've got to have a lot of sensors. Well, I mean, there's going to be some numbers, 50 billion smart sensors out there in the mere matter of a, just a few years. You have to have connectivity at kind of a macro level, and boy, you look at, you know, 4G networks and LTE being deployed around the world and all the backhaul and the like, and, and that, that's moving along pretty well. Um, these analyses are sometimes very, very complex and, and simply heavy. In other words, you have to store a lot of data and you've got to process a lot of data. And this whole big data revolution with Hadoop and all the associated tools is actually moving on at hyper speed. And it is just amazing at all the companies investing in that and providing for tools for us. Uh, the cost of cloud computing and storage is dropping like a rock, which makes all of this feasible. So when you look at m- most of the elements, you see them moving along pretty quickly. Now, the exception that I cite is wireless, and that's where the physics comes in, because you've got to uh, uh, connect all this data. And there's this fun little thing that I've always worked for I call the last hurdles. And uh, underline the word last. So I, I wrote down for somebody the other day all the last things I've worked on. I've worked on last miles. I've worked on last hundred meters. I've worked on last rooms. And two years ago, I worked on the last square mile. Um, the last square mile when I had to do something that had satellite coverage of oceans and deserts. So we looked at where we could 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 get coverage and. Probably the toughest part of this is what we'll call the last room or the, the, the last link. And, you know, when you, when you try to put an application in place and get data from where it, where it is produced onto the Internet, you have to make that last link. And as you do that, you have problems with range of communication, you have cost problems depending on the licensing scenario. Sometimes these devices require power, and you'll find out that people hate to change batteries. They want to change batteries at a minimum every five years, ten years, and now kind of the vogue is never to change batteries. Um, sometimes you have security problems. And then finally, even networks that make a lot of sense, uh, are just not available. So, you know, we, we'll look like in a home, we'll look at doing something on Wi-Fi, Bluetooth, uh, maybe the cellular network like LTE or with Zigbee or Z-Wave, which are kind of home automation type capabilities. And boy, inevitably, nothing works perfectly. And so making this last link is is really important. And where, where industry's failing is... <coughs> 
it takes the, the incumbents, the key participants, to get together and collaborate and to surmount these hurdles to really sort through all these things, to kind of reduce the numbers we're trying to do and, and get ones that are big enough, low-cost enough, fully adopted enough and available. So it, it really, really works. And this lack of collaboration in many industries is turning into kind of a major impediment of the Internet of Things. So that's kind of how I explain wireless. I'm really talking about the last hundred meters and the 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 challenges we have when we get down to practically doing applications and to practically building the links that, that we need to, to complete them. And one of the reasons that this isn't happening, you've said, is because there's these a lot of these players have a vested interest in not really helping us succeed because it will kind of cannibalize their business? Absolutely. So, so I call it a paradox, and I spend many hours thinking about whether it really is a paradox or whether people need to consider it as inevitable. But it's the kind of the, the, the paradox is I can't develop the Internet of Things unless I make the connection. But if I make the connection and the Internet of Things gets developed, it's useless to me and actually destroys what I already have. And so I many people sit there frozen and say, I'm not really going to collaborate or I'm going to wait out and see if I can play this by myself because it's a, it's a high risk reward ratio. You know, there's very high returns for the few people that dominate this. And so you'll see this played along very differently across different spaces. Some, some industry verticals are collaborating very readily. Some are really retarding the progress. And, uh, you know, I, I always tell people, look at the people who kind of own the industry, the leaders, and how they're looking at this. And are they kind of holding back or are they forging ahead and leaning? And, and the beauty of us at Emerson over the last 10 years working on it for so long and in all of our industry spaces, we're trying to be at the forefront and to drive it because we're trying to have a lot of foresight about what are the ultimate business models and how will we make money in the 21st century. Well, let's talk about that a little bit because that's probably on everybody's mind. I mean, when I think about the home, for example, it's clear that, you know, there's there's money to be made, although maybe the margins are slim on selling actual devices to consumers is is many people say um there's also money to be made on the data in aggregate um a lot of people would argue that there's money to be made on services so contracts for services like i see that your air conditioner is not performing up to speed my analytics tell me this and i've got a connected something on it um so let me send you a plumber and i'll take a cut of whatever you pay the not the plumber i'm sorry i'll send you an hvac technician um and i'll take That's a, cut okay. of that. a, lot, a lot of plumbers are hvac technicians so you you actually didn't mess that up so that's okay i i mean for all I know, I would call a plumber in that situation. I'm a special individual, or maybe I've just got a, a an errant an errant data data analysis kind of going on. Um, so so that kind of makes sense. On, on the industrial side, you know, I can imagine people paying for services like analysis of, you know, temperature data in my refrigerators. If I'm a grocery store, you know, it, it's probably highly valuable to me to know that, you know, all of my food storage is at the right temperature and safe and you know, knowing before it goes below, I think it's 44 degrees, maybe, or 40 degrees um, Fahrenheit, you know, if my, my meat goes below that temperature. Um, but what other models do you think kind of make sense? Or, again, where are those levers? Well, the, the problem is, depending on how fully this developed, it's arguable how much profit there is in any of those downstream uh, businesses that you suggest, services, hardware, all, all of that stuff. So the way I like to think about this is I, I lived the 20th century and we found great value in manufacturing. And Emerson did really, really well with that. Um, but 
perhaps over the last decade, there's this haunting little phrase called all the values in the information that's kind of dominating people's thinking. And, and unfortunately, that's really valid. And so depending on the degree to which uh, this plays out, if, if, if any single entity dominates the information, they actually are going to control a lot of the margin in the, the, certainly the hardware that creates these applications, as well as even the services. I mean, we see in fully developed Internet of Things applications productivity improvements in the services of 60 or 70 percent which basically means that you think of the manpower in an industry, you can imagine in a perfectly deployed Internet of Things application, 60 or 70 of percent of that manpower will go away, the number of service companies will decline rapidly, and the ones that are left are going to be at the mercy of the central platform that kind of owns the information, and they can even bid out those leads. So it... It, it develops into a pretty extreme thing to where all the, the values in, in, in the, the central brain or the central repository of knowledge. And that's why you have Google trying to dominate the home or Amazon trying to dominate the home or Apple, all these big companies. You know, it becomes, becomes a big war. But, uh, and I'm not saying that that's going to happen in every single application or that it's going to develop that far, but that's at least the risk. The more you really understand these new business models, the more you understand the power is in the information. So I like to say that the 20th century was the century of manufacturing, but if you want to make high returns in the 21st century, you have to be a company that trades on information, and that's really been the drive that has forced all of us uh, around Emerson to uh, look over the last decade of how do we transform our businesses into information-based businesses. And it's actually been a lot of fun because we, we kind of had already evolved our products to an intelligent products business, and that was that's kind of the first major step. Well, that is kind of a demoralizing view of uh, the workforce, at least. Um, I will. No, 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 no. This is exciting. The world has more problems in the 21st century that we have ever faced, whether it's security, uh, declining workforce, aging population, health, distributing wealth around the world, equality, sustainability, the environmental. There's so many problems, and all of this promises to solve all those problems. And it just takes kind of foresight and, and collaboration to do that. So being part of this, is it's, it's exhilarating. So I didn't mean to depress you. I meant to excite you. Oh, it's hard to make me like super depressed. So don't worry too much, Charlie. Um, I will think about the positive things. I will also think of ways to uh, to kind of retrain the workforce because we should probably be thinking about that too. Um, all right. Well, we are out of time, but I appreciate you coming on the show. I am super excited to hear kind of alternatives and things to, I, I, I'm picturing you hoarding information like a squirrel hoards nuts right now. <laughs> I'm like all the bits. I want all the bits of, to me, um, and and that is that is certainly something that we talk about a lot, and I do believe is is happening. Um, so there there are concerns for the consumer, but we'll we'll think about that. And as as a business, I think it's definitely the right strategy. So thank you so much for coming on the show. All right, Stacy. Whenever you want to talk about hoarding and the impact, the consumer becomes really empowered here, but that's for a future conversation. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed that. Thank you.